Hi, everyone. How are you doing? <laughs> Good? Warm. Yeah. Okay. Me too. Well, our team, uh, we're doing a little experiment in giving a little bit shorter talks with some exercises afterwards. So you don't have to settle in for an hour of um, listening. David Gergen, uh, the columnist, said to some uh, commencement class that reported in the New York Times that uh, after 15 minutes, studies show that you enter boredom and sexual fantasies. So we're going <laughs> to try to keep them a little shorter first. <laughs> anyway, in a more serious vein, I want to just begin with the words of uh, Bishop Tutu. It's a much more serious vein. After a one truth and reconciliation process in South Africa, he said, um, I would like to take off my shoes, for this is holy ground where reconciliation has taken place. And I feel that um, this meditation hall is also like that holy ground where we are becoming reconciled to ourselves and to the reality of how this world is and gaining some tools for reconciliation with others, with our lives that we can take away from here and build holy ground in our lives um, and in the lives of others. In fact, I think about this when I take off my shoes in the shoe room, that that's a sign of entering holy ground. Part of the taking off your shoes is sort of like saying that we're not hiking anywhere, we're not really going anywhere. We don't have to have our shoes with us. We're not going anywhere, in a sense, in this practice either. We're stopping, kind of. Stopping and being with ourselves, just as we are, just now, in this moment. This one who's happening to be us, who's appeared here in some mysterious way and uh, will disappear from this place in a few days. So meeting ourselves as we are has a very transforming quality as I've been hearing today in the meetings with you, both sort of in the short term and immediate blessing of maybe being with a flower or um, one person mentioned peeing as a really important experience she had today. Well, that just made me forget what I was going to say next. (laughs) Peeing. Anyway, a quote from Walt Whitman. Um, Beginning my studies, the first step pleased me so much. The mere fact of consciousness, these forms and the power of motion, the least insect or animal, the senses, eyesight, love. The first step, I say, awed me and pleased me so much, I have hardly wished to go any farther, but stop and loiter all the time to sing it in ecstatic songs. So last night, Jack talked about the Four Noble Truths and emphasizing really uh, suffering and how suffering can really lead to a compassionate response. And in that, I also want to praise and thank all of you for the response this morning of just being 
most of you or most of us just sitting on our seats and feeling our response to uh, the tumbling over of a person in the back. And um, I think it may have been said already more than once, but uh, that person is all right. And we also got a note uh, thanking the whole community for the way that we were here and the way that we helped both in the material way and also just simply in being here together and holding the experience. Um, So I think we did really well with it and we're sorry that it happened for uh, those of you who were really in the incident, but we're glad that you're okay. I'm sure that everyone here would say the same, right? Glad. So tonight I'll talk a little about the second noble truth uh, in the cause of suffering and really um, the cause of, I would say, more suffering being uh, the second noble truth is a very empowering noble truth. It's kind of the beginning of uh, explicit forms of practice. That the way that we relate to what we're experiencing can lead either to more suffering or suffering upon suffering or lead to the kind of ecstasy that Walt Whitman was describing of just understanding the kind of the miracle of existence and drawing close to it and having a relationship to it within our experience, within this vulnerable form that we all have. I think uh, personally when the Buddha speaks about dukkha or uh, suffering, it's almost like a code or an exaggerated way of saying we're all experiencers, you know, and we live in this world of contingency. And as experiencers in a contingent and fleeting world, we're vulnerable. We're vulnerable to anything happening at any time and... um, that makes us either calls us to openness or calls us to contraction and fear or various forms of blockage. And this is, in part, it's kind of a natural and innocent response to the unpredictability of things. But if we study the effect of this kind of uh, reactivity on ourselves, we'll see that the option of opening and calming and being with what is is actually better and happier and leads to a deeper experience of joy in life. Um, On my way here, I was buying my little pound of coffee that I always bring to these retreats. And I go to this special coffee shop. I spend a little more money. I get a little bag of this kind of expensive coffee that I really like. Um, And I met up with a friend just coming to this retreat. And it was someone I had been close with many years ago. And I kind of took a while to recognize him. It was sort of he'd changed a little bit and it was interesting to sort of have the recognition slowly dawn and then it was like, oh, that's who he is. So I sat down next to him and said, hey. And he was like, oh, hey. And I said, so how are you doing? And he immediately said, you know, I'm having a really hard time. I'm having a hard time in my life, in my family. And he described a situation where there had been actually a murder in his near family and it was causing a lot of distress. So he said, I'm having a lot of sadness with that and the families working with it in different ways and in the outer world he said he's a Vietnam veteran so he said you know sometimes when I see all the wars and I see how human beings are treated it makes me really sad and he works for a nonprofit, so he's had problems in his job so then he said but you know this is life you know this is life contains this kind of suffering and this kind of pain and I'm not trying to run away from it what are you going to do he said Um, It was very beautiful because this was also a statement of that not going anywhere, kind of a very deep acceptance. 
And we talked a little more, and each of us sharing uh, little bits of our truth. You know, it was some, like one of those conversations where it was like he was so open and so real just in that short moment of even not having seen each other that it was part of the beauty of my life in that day. Um, and we agreed that what can you do with suffering is meet it with grace and with as much learning as possible. He talked also about how he was meeting his experience now without drugs and alcohol. And the first thing I said was, oh, maybe that makes it harder. And he said, oh, no, it sure doesn't make it harder. He said, facing it and really being with it is easier than running away. Because if you run away, then it pops up somewhere else. It actually does compound the pain. Um, So it was a great conversation. Then um, I bought my little pound of coffee. And when I got here, I found that the person, the barista, had ground it much too big, bigger than I wanted. And my first, I was filled with a little like contraction and peevishness, and I, I started thinking like I gave him a tip. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Why did I do that? <laughs> I figured out how to make it work. It's still good, you know. But um, <laughs> from now on, I'm going to look inside the bag before I give it, before I walk away, thinking my special coffee is going to be so great. So anyway, like even that little moment of aversion and contraction. Um, around the coffee was of a kind of value to me. Like it gave me something that I could learn from my experience. And I want to say as part of the first noble truth that we need our full repertoire of feelings and thoughts and emotions and stuff to live our life that very often desire and um, maybe anger or grief are all parts of the coloration of our lives. And we may feel that perfection would be that we were never subjected to another difficult emotion or difficult internal state. But some of us have reached the stage of having quite a lot of gray hairs without having come to the end of that. So finding reconciliation with all the ups and downs of our experiences, um, one very important ingredient of what we're doing here. But the second noble truth is also about recognizing how sometimes our reactivity can get out of hand. It's an example I can give... uh, Trudy and I are both students of a Burmese, uh, or sometime students of a Burmese doctor in California named Da Tintin. And she has a very simple way of talking about how our response to experience can cause kind of more problems than it's worth. She says, now, say somebody hands you a rotten apple, uh, and kind of like you, you want a piece of fruit and they give you an apple and you look at it and you see that it's rotten. Like what happens in that moment? Do you just say that this apple has passed its eat-by date and you should see that it's rotten? Or do you say, you know, why did you give me that apple? Or why do you always buy too much stuff on sale? You know, and then it goes bad in the fridge and you eat all the good ones and leave all the bad ones for me. Or, you know, this is such a waste of money. It's a tragedy. You know, it has to go to the compost or the landfill. Or, you know, there's so much that extra that our minds often will bring to an experience that, isn't necessarily helpful and causes us to suffer more than the mere recognition that, you know, here's this apple that I, mo- I might not be able to eat right now, or I might not even like half of it, or maybe I can eat the other half. A friend of mine um, was on an airplane, and she was really enjoying her meditation, saying, you know, there's really nothing you can do. I was sitting and just being in the state of being in between one place and another and really relaxed, and then all of a sudden there was this air pocket, and she said she experienced all the exact feelings she would have if the plane had actually crashed. 
<laughs> but this too is our heritage and part of our vulnerability as being a human being that we include and we bring on board um, all of these internal responses in our practice, all of these energies and uh, reactions. And we don't try to move on from them too quickly. As our practice deepens, uh, we begin to have the sort of sophistication in our awareness to open to them more. And that will become part of the instructions, um, how to have a skillful and compassionate response to this internal reality of ours. So we can view these emotional states, and I think we all know that in meditation practice, they sometimes can become quite seemingly extreme or uh, more empowered because there's not that much else going on. It's like the external stuff starts to subside and then this inner life starts to become quite energized sometimes. I know I used to be at IMS a long time ago when the office was in what's now the staff dining room and there was no sort of barrier or counter. You know, Now you see in the office there's a little counter that keeps you or us, the practitioners, away from the staff a little bit so that when we come in and say, toothpaste. (laughs) I need toothpaste with all the energy of several days of reflection about which brand it is that you need. (laughs) That the staff has almost a physical barrier from this. (laughs) Um, But it's almost that we can have a tendency to suppress or distract or something in our ordinary life. So this kind of magnification, while it can sometimes push us up against the boundaries of what we feel like we can really bear, it's also very useful uh, to learn and to dramatize the need for coming into a relationship of equanimity with our inner life, with all these ups and downs and surgings and colorations. So much so that one of the Tibetan teachers I work with, Kachab Rinpoche, Um, whenever he gives a teaching at the front of the hall, there's a shrine with the Buddha and all kinds of beautiful objects. And at the back of the hall, there's a little shrine to conflict with a pair of toy boxing gloves and some really kind of ugly stuff back there saying, you know, we keep this in the room with us. So that's very important. Now, the Buddha talked about um, various... uh, different ways in which we uh, can tend to disconnect from ourselves. And I'm going to speak about them very briefly because I do have the intention to keep this talk quite short. The first one and major one, say, it's being desire or craving or clinging. Um, And we're not talking about the desire that leads to creativity or the betterment of the world, um, any of that. We're talking about the uh, sense of maybe even perfectionism that makes us always judge ourselves as in a state of lacking, lacking being okay. Um, The way we latch on to experiences or judge our experience by something that we don't have in this moment, something that blocks us from really being with ourselves as we are, carrying an idea or a view about how we should be or about how other human beings should be. So for desire, when you find yourself in a strong desire, like wanting to possess some internal or external state, the idea is to look a little bit less at the thing that you think 
that you want or you need in order to be happy. And be with the experience of that wanting. Be willing to just feel it. And you may find, as Pat said uh, in his early instructions about thinking, that the state of wanting is itself a little bit uncomfortable or tight, um, like the thinking process. But as you open to it more and more, it just becomes another energy, another color of your inner world. And what you find, or you may find, is that as you're very generous with your attention to this, that you become satisfied with the openness, um, that opening of the heart. Um, And even sometimes being willing to experience a moment of pleasure without trying to latch onto it and make it stay is more exquisite than uh, trying to hold it and keep it here. Tolstoy said that there's a big mistake that people make in believing that happiness comes from fulfilling our desires. The Buddha said, the rain could turn to gold and still your thirst would not be quenched. So when desire becomes, and you will feel this for yourself, an obstacle to deeper joy and peace or an obstacle to really being able to be with this moment, Just see what that experience is like and see if the attention and openness that you can bring to it actually turns uh, the experience of your presence uh, with it into gold or allows you to resettle into the just simple ordinariness of this moment and appreciate this, what you do have instead of what you don't. It's a skill. Um, It doesn't mean that you should never go for anything Uh, like that, or that you shouldn't build toward the future, but critical to be able to come back and engage again with the here and now, with this experience, um, this moment, all we have, really. And the second major energy that um, cuts us off from experience is, of course, aversion or disliking. And it's a sort of very innocent response that unpleasant things are things we don't like and we want to separate from those things. It can be a very necessary reflex, a recognition for you know, survival that, um, you know, you don't, that in, when you are studying wilderness things, like one of the things that they taught me was if you eat a plant and it has a really bitter, awful taste, the chances are that you shouldn't eat it. You know, <laughs> turn away from it, spit it out. But we can also see in our practice, it takes a little subtlety that sometimes the aversion and the judgment uh, of an experience is what turns something that's merely unpleasant into a state of great torture. Feeling like this should not be happening or um, I'm a bad person because this is happening, you know, that I'm inadequate, I'm a bad meditator, all of that. I think we've all experienced that, that Even how often have I heard as a teacher, I thought I was done with this. I've done so much work on this feeling. Here I am again. You know, and instead of saying, this is bad and terrible and it shouldn't be happening right now, or I'm terrible, can we turn to that experience with kindness, uh, with as much softness and acceptance of our humanity as we can? It actually is within our... Uh, realm of possibility to learn how to do this more and more. It's it's slow not to be rushed. Um, We 
shouldn't rush any kind of reconciliation, whether externally or internally, because what we risk is uh, really disrespecting ourselves or coercing ourselves or um, actually sort of trying to get rid of the bad experience or having your meditation turn into, a, again, back into the perfectionism mode. And it's also good to take the advice of being willing to experience pain um, with a grain of salt, that sometimes it's not good, even in the meditation practice. Sometimes if we feel really overwhelmed or we find ourselves very contracted, um, that it's good to refresh the mind or go for a walk or look at something beautiful or find a place in the body where there's a sense of peace so that we can reconnect with something different. It's like sometimes the monsters, the medieval monsters, are bigger than we are and we need to... um, get some kind of help. In fact, even um, the Buddha here touched the earth at one point when he was feeling overwhelmed in his meditation. That's, he touched, this gesture here is that he was touching the earth and asking for help from the earth to really support him as he faced some of his own demons. Um, it's a very important thing. So there are times when we can't really be with ourselves and meditation and mindfulness are one part of a holistic way of really looking at uh, what troubles us inwardly. Sometimes what troubles us inwardly comes from causes that are very big in this world, and we can't necessarily do it all with just mindfulness, so I want to say that. But this is why a sense of kindness is very important in our practice, uh, to deal with things that are challenging and difficult rather than splitting off or going away or always trying to run away from them. Those are the two major desire and aversion. Then there are some things with about restlessness, um, energy imbalance, um, anxiety, regret, worry, which are kind of subsets of aversion in a sense. The advice here is to really broaden and soften the mind, bring compassion to whatever we're experiencing, be willing uh, to feel the pain of restlessness or anxiety. Very often listening meditation is helpful with that when you feel like you've just got too much inside you. Um, Switching the focus to just hearing the sounds of the birds or the wind or even just being willing to listen to no sound or very little sound um, can bring us almost psychophysically into a place of greater rest. The other energy imbalance is sleepiness and boredom. For that, finding a little more energy in the body is good, Um, sharpening the attention. Sometimes we're really just tired and we do need to rest, especially in a short retreat we come in with so much exhaustion, um, many of us. But as we gradually are willing to stay with the states of sleepiness and restlessness without adding on to them too much, just saying this is what's happening now, be as willing uh, as you can to be with it as much as you can. They tend to balance out. Um, Sometimes with sleepiness, uh, standing up is a great decision to make. We've talked about this, so I'm not going to go into them very much beyond that. The last of the five ways to um, separate from our experience is to get really skeptical about it, um, to question whether or not you should be doing this, um, whether you're the right person, whether this is the right practice, that kind of thing. 
taking you out of your experience, or whether these are the right teachers is another thing that can sometimes <laughs> interfere. <laughs> How our hair is sometimes really disqualifies us from <laughs> having any authority, moral authority at all. Generally, questioning is actually prized in Buddhist practice and questioning all the arrangements of society and convention and that stuff, and even sometimes questioning the things that our mind is saying to us, a really useful thing to do. But the advice with doubt is really you know, to relax, you know, try to stay here, stay in the room, and be with it. One of the big experiences of doubt I had recently was trying to drive a rental car through my, with my husband through unknown cities and thinking that we knew where to go. And most of the time, our big doubts would arise that this can't possibly be the way. Like, we cannot be on the right track at all. And we'd make a U-turn and go back to where we were and then learn that mostly what had happened was that we hadn't gone far enough with the directions, right? And you really needed to... In one case, we were like 100 yards from the thing we were looking for, (laughs) this ferry that we were supposed to get on. You know, it was like we had turned around and we went for like about a half-hour drive through the worst part of the city, and it had been just ahead of us. (laughs) So doubt. So this is a very short exposition, and I hope to have persuaded you a little bit of the value of actually being with things that are challenging and may feel difficult or may feel kind of a little bit unwanted or weird or like not, not the thing that you came here to do. It is the thing that we all came here to do, is to be with the process as it is. So also I just want to remind us all of the stillness of awareness that is what connects. It's like a strand uh, through a pearl necklace that takes us through all these states and keeps us going. With a poem by Juan Ramón Jiménez, the Spanish poet, where he says, I am not I. I am the one whom at times I manage to visit and whom at other times I forget, who remains calm and silent while I talk and forgives very gently when I hate. So thank you for your listening to this part of the evening presentation. And I would like now to um, ask you to find someone uh, to talk with, and maybe not the same person that you spoke with last night. So I guess maybe be willing to get up and move around a little and uh, find a partner. Those who disobey and talk to the same person are fine. They're not going to be kicked out. (laughs) But don't talk yet. Or just quietly do this. So we're going to first um, speak about some experience that you've had either here on the retreat or kind of in the recent time just before the retreat that maybe you haven't negotiated very well. Um, in brief, some place or way that you feel still a little caught, something that's a challenge. And the listener, of course, provides the listening with compassion uh, for this. So just for a couple minutes, describe that experience and be with yourself also as you speak with compassion. You don't have to pick the biggest 
worst thing that would be the most self-disclosing and blow the person away and yourself away and <laughs> leave you as a basket case. <laughs> it can just be like not liking the food, like the, the peanut soup that first night or something, you know, when you didn't uh, think you wanted to stay <laughs> anymore. <laughs> so that, so one person speaks, the other listens. Then when it's done, the listener says thank you, and then the other one will uh, speak, and the other one will listen. And so that's the part one. And part two, we'll talk about something that you felt you negotiated really well. Um, so it'll be 10 or 20 minutes here. But you'll ring the bell. I'll ring the bell. Um, what will I give? I'll give um, 10 minutes for the first segment, so you'll each have about five minutes, and I hope you can sort of regulate that. And if, as the listener, you feel like the person is kind of going far and you aren't going to end up with any time, then you maybe could raise your finger and let them know somehow that it's, they need to <laughs> rein it in. <laughs> Do you think, should I ring a bell in five minutes? No? Yes. F- bell in five minutes to switch. <laughs> Bell in another five minutes, and then I'll speak a little bit about the other, the next <coughs> exercise. Okay. Go.
Since we have a little time, I will ask you. Oh, we don't. Okay. Okay, so time for the second person to speak of how they've gotten caught and caused suffering for themselves or for someone else. Thank you. Where you feel stuck.
So just take a moment to re sort of quiet and feel your body and feel your inner life. Whether there's a sense of compassion or something else, uh, could whatever you're feeling. So in the Second exercise is to speak about and listen about um, some moment that you were able to meet with grace, with a moment that you may have been able to meet with grace, um, some way that you could... This is the second noble truth, to either find yourself bound and caught and holding on to something, you know, wanting something to be different from the way it is and not able to sort of let go and acknowledge reality or sort of overly embroidering something. But it's also, when are you able to bring the necessary grace to a situation? Whether it was just not jumping up from your cushion this morning um, when the crisis was taking place, even though you might have really wanted to help, knowing that you can't crowd all around. It's not really going to help, so you had to be with something that felt like you wanted to do something else. You did that. Or um, sometime when you're able to shed your inner agenda for something to be the way you wanted it to be, or for someone, or for yourself. Um, or anything of that sort that you negotiated with grace. Does that make sense? Okay. So, um, again, I'll ring a bell in five minutes and ten minutes, so please uh, speak and listen.
happy to hear the momentum of reporting on the victories of the heart. Um, so now the second person will speak and the first person will listen. Um, so five more minutes then for that. Were you trying to squeeze in two into the five minutes? Some of you may have been. Anyway, the next round, then this will be the last round. Um, tell about something you negotiated with wisdom or grace.
So it's uh, allowed to bask in the recognition that we have grace, wisdom, and clarity, and to rejoice in what you've said or what you've heard or remembered, um, to see that as part of our birthright, a natural part of us, but also a part of us that we can grow and develop. And we hope that by hearing and speaking and listening uh, this way, that uh, you will help each other to grow and recognize that wisdom in yourselves, which is one big reason we shortened the talk. It's not just to work less hard. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, right, and Trudy says, or to prevent you from having sexual fantasies. I'll, I'm going to add that talking to each other might encourage having more of them, but I'm not. I don't put beans in your ears, you guys. <laughs> anyway, okay. So please thank your partner and um, thank yourself. Thank you, partner. And I think as the teachers did the exercises, it would also be great to be a fly on the wall and hear everything there. Um, but we can renounce that need. So um, we'll take a minute here to just sit and settle. So I'll read you a little story just to finish up this time of the day. I lived for nearly, this is not by me, this is by uh, someone who wrote to this magazine, The Sun, um, named Alina Kampana. I lived for nearly two years in a village in central Mongolia as a Peace Corps volunteer. The only way to get there was by Russian-made jeep, a journey that took anywhere from 10 to 26 hours along crumbling roads or more often two parallel tire ruts. She says how a few months into her stay, it was her birthday, and she arranged with some other volunteers to have a party for herself, which required her to try to get a ride to one of these distant places on one of these roads in one of these Jeeps to meet with her friends. Um, The distance to cover, she said, was about an hour's drive. But after about five minutes, the driver with whom she'd hitched a ride suddenly announced that we were out of gas and veered off the road toward a nomadic herder's hut. It was a stunningly beautiful locale surrounded by trees, a river, and mountains. The old woman who lived there welcomed me into her home, gave me tea and something to eat, and patiently tried to speak with me. My Mongolian was rudimentary at best. The driver went out on foot to find gas and assured me he would get me to to my destination that day. But when the late afternoon sun began to cast long shadows across the valley, I was still playing Mongolian dominoes with the old woman. 
As I slowly accepted that I would spend the night in this place, my mind began to spin fearful fantasies about everything that could go wrong out here in the middle of nowhere. No phone, electricity, no connection to the rest of the world. What if I got sick or injured? How long would it take for someone to find that I was missing? That night, the old woman's husband, who'd been out tending their animals all day, returned and we ate by candlelight. The husband slept near the stove and got up regularly throughout the night to add wood to the fire. I believe he did this for my benefit and reassurance. The next morning, the driver flagged down another Jeep and I made it to my destination. But since that time, I've often reflected on the irony of having felt such panic in one of the most peaceful locales I've ever visited. So may we all um, touch the ground of the peaceful locale and also be at peace and embrace ourselves if we're feeling frightened or panicked um, to find the resources that we need, as the Trudy's metaphrase said, to meet every moment as a friend. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.